2: Not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life.
3: PNC Bank. Brilliantly boring since
2: 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC.
4: Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong.
3: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, April 24th is Administrative Professionals Day, formerly known as Secretary's Day. And that celebration, along with the fact that... Administrative assistant slash secretary is still the most common job for women in the United States. It's the reason why we wanted to do this podcast on secretarial work and the history of the
0: secretaries, how women took over clerical work from men. Yeah, it it does go beyond madmen, Kristen, if if you can believe it. It actually does have a very interesting evolution as far as why... Secretary jobs became so important in the first place, and those origins lie in the Industrial Revolution.
3: Yes. Um, but should we offer first a snapshot of what secretarial work looks like today? Yeah. The 2010 median pay for a secretary is just under $35,000, which is roughly $16.66. Did you just pull that out of your head? I did not. This is from the Bureau <laughs> of Labor Statistics. But that's $16.66 per hour, and the qualifications are usually a high school diploma and basic office and computing skills. The job outlook is decent, it's 12% projected growth for any uh, job wonks out there who are curious, which is about on average. And like I said, it's still the most common job for women. And that made headlines, a lot of headlines actually, uh, when the, those numbers came out not too long ago because people were shocked that secretary is still the number one job.
0: Yeah, according to CNN talking about this, between 2006 and 2010, 96% of people who call themselves secretaries and administrative assistants were women. That's that's most of them. (laughs) Yeah. In case you didn't know. Well,
3: and the thing about secretarial work that we'll talk about as well is that even though it's a solid job sector and is... Pretty important. The specter has never been raised. We We Mm -hmm. still kind of think of it. it, No one was happy to hear that women still fill 96 percent of secretarial jobs because I think there is a stereotype that goes
0: along with it that is that it's
3: kind of demeaning work.
0: Right. Well, there's still, I mean, there's still the perception also that you don't do much as an administrative assistant. Right. Um, Lynn Peril, who we will cite a lot in this episode, she wrote, Swimming in the Steno Pool, a retro guide to making it in the office, wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times in April 2011. And she kind of goes back to when... People in the, you know, 50s, 60s thought that, oh, man, we are going to have all these amazing technological developments and secretaries won't even have to come in for most of the day. Like computers, electronic computers will solve all of our problems. And she points out there's one little sticking point that no matter how much technology we develop, administrative assistants or really office assistants of any kind are still expected to fetch the coffee. That's still such a sticking point in so many offices. And she cites a lot of women who ended up running into trouble at their offices or even being fired for refusing to go get coffee for people.
3: Yeah. And perhaps because of things like being expected to make coffee for people and perhaps because of the, uh, the lack of respect that administrative work gets, it still remains quote and often taxing, sometimes humiliating and increasingly precarious. Job, But if we go back to ancient Rome, and this is coming from the International Association of Administrative Professionals, it was a respectable job. Uh, The secretaries were usually highly educated men who took dictation as scribes
0: and often acted as trusted advisors. Yeah, you know, chiseling all those little memos into uh into stone tablets and whatnot. You needed a steady hand. A steady steady hand. Um, uh, moving into early modern times though, members of the nobility also had male secretaries who could speak several languages and were required to have a broad education. And really, I mean Going forward until the industrial revolution, men dominated the field. It was until the 1880s that women took over. And so in, even, even in the late 19th century, women are still kind of in the home. They haven't moved outside of really domestic work, I would say. Um, and, you know, they were in their own spheres. The clerk did the bulk of the work in the offices, drafting letters, copying documents, filing, keeping the books. But because they were men, Any clerical work they did could reasonably be expected to help them move up the ladder eventually. So you could start in an office in the late 19th century as a clerk, but eventually become the VP, the boss, the guy running the store. That's not so much the case with women, but that whole moving men up and paying them more also has a lot to do with why women took over clerical work in the first place.
3: So with the industrial revolution came an enormous amount of paperwork and with that we have the quote unquote feminization of low level clerical work and also a revolutionary machine that really is a a big reason to think for women taking over the sector and that is the invention of the typewriter. So after, this is really interesting, after the Civil War, the company E. Remington & Sons was looking for a way to expand its product line because rifles were not in high demand in peacetime. So in 1873, it took on this typewriter design that was designed by this guy, last name Scholes, and they sold it. Now there are a ton of other people who were also developing typewriters at the time, um, but they weren't considering the typewriter for office work. A lot of times it was marketed as more of a quote-unquote literary piano. Oh, how melodic. Yes, for for writers and such. But Remington took a bet that it would be used for clerical work, and it paid off. And one other way that Remington made bank was by marketing it toward women. And one way that they did that was by casing one of their earliest typewriter models
0: with um, a floral... A floral casing. Casing oh. it with a floral casing. Thank God, because I hate typing on just plain black typewriters myself. Well, in many of those early ads, so for that Remington model, it was often
3: modeled by Schultz, the inventor's daughter, Lillian. So from the outset, you have these advertising images of women next to typewriters and pretty soon once you enter the early 20th century you have the uh, icon of the typewriter girl.
0: Yeah, well so why did this become why why do we have a typewriter girl icon to begin with? And part of that has to do with companies realized they could pay women lower wages to do the work. Yeah. They realized when women started entering the office during the Civil War because of employment shortages, people are like, "Oh, wait, wait, wait. Women can do other things besides just, like, cook me dinner. So they realize that they need to get more women in the office because, A, they can work and use their brains, and, B, they can be paid less. So you get these secretarial schools opening up that offer professional training that make it possible for women to enter the workforce without having a college education. So that kind of broadens the appeal for a lot of people. Can I rant for a sec? Please, please.
2: Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association member, FDIC.
0: And there were a lot of considerations for women, too. I mean, yes, you can argue that they're being taken advantage of, but. For women, like I said, there wasn't much outside of domestic work. They had relatively high wages in the office compared with the alternatives, and there was a certain status and respectability to office employment. Plus, you got that education if you went to one of these secretarial schools. And so to look at some of those salaries, at the end of the 19th century in the Northeast, for instance, domestic servants earned two to five dollars a week, factory workers, a dollar fifty to eight dollars per week, whereas typists and stenographers earned six to fifteen dollars a week.
3: Yeah, but and even though that uh, stenographer six to fifteen dollars a week was anywhere from a third to half of what men would make doing the same thing, uh, like you said, Caroline, that was a great option considering that in 1885 the only female employment sectors you could go into were teaching, which was something that was also revolutionary at the time because women had only recently taken over for men as teachers, mm-hmm. uh, nursing, clerking, doing
0: the domestic servant work, or a factory work or of course uh, just getting married and the number of women working as stenographers actually rose pretty rapidly in 1870 there were just seven seven women working as stenographers according to the census for that's 4.5% of the 154 stenographers in the country but by 1900 there were 200,000 and by 1930 Two million. So that's an incredible increase, I think, as far as women coming into that line of work and quote unquote feminizing it. And these typists generally were from the middle class, urban households, because typing was considered more morally acceptable than factory and servant positions. So there, there was kind of a general type to the typist, if you will
3: yeah um speaking of the the moral acceptability of it in eighteen eighty nine the Ladies Home Journal editor Edward Bach said that uh office work is quote the best paid and most respectable employment for a young woman and again I mean the the whole advertising imagery of the women next to the typewriter really can't be underscored enough. This was something that Donald Hoke explored in his paper the woman and the typewriter a case study in technological innovation and social change and there was also at the time a picture postcard craze and uh there were all of these postcards that would come out Showing the typewriter girl. and sometimes it would be titillating, <laughs> yes, yeah, sometimes it would just be kind of a you know, a, a pretty generic image of a girl next to a typewriter. Sometimes it would be, yes, a little more titillating. There was one from nineteen oh seven that's this a uh, three part card showing a wife catching her husband with a secretary. In one of the panels, she calls her an amorous little upstart. So pretty quickly there, too, though, you have the there's there is this discomfort of these women entering the office, even though it's considered more morally acceptable. And the novelty of the typewriter was really important because that meant that this was a gender neutral job. It wasn't women pushing men out of typing jobs. They were simply filling positions in an expanding industry.
0: Yeah, and it should be noted that, okay, so women weren't pushing men out of jobs, like, you know, physically, or they weren't being hired over men necessarily, but the number of men really did start to dwindle, and a 1906 book even encouraged men to think hard before they took one of these jobs, because by the turn of the 20th century, the position was already so feminized that they were like, ugh, do you really want to, you know, get into, like, a woman job? And
3: one thing to think about, too, is the fact that, you know, even though we might still consider you know, typing in low-level clerical work, even in that description, oh, it's just low-level jobs. This was revolutionary because typically women had moved out of the house Mm -hmm. by, you know, going for occupations that they had typically performed at home, which is why so many, for instance, at that time were working in garment factories. They were simply taking their jobs out of the home and into the workplace. But the typewriter opens up this whole new thing.
0: Yeah, and in 1942, we start organizing. The, in 1942, the National Secretaries Association formed, and it's now the International Association of Administrative Professionals. And in 1951, that group administered the first certified professional secretaries examination. And for
3: anyone who does watch Mad Men, you know that there is a hierarchy among these secretaries, especially in, you know, the 1940s, 50s, and 60s.
0: Yeah, and a lot of that hierarchy is very evident in the steno pool. This is again coming from Lynn Peril. Uh, she talks about how these steno pools are groups, large groups of desks where all the women are hard at work typing. They might be listening to a dictation on their headphones, their headset, um, or, or typing up notes. And that's usually where the newbies got their start is in the steno pool at the desk. So lowest on the totem pole, you have the typists. It's moving slightly up. The totem pole, we have the stenographers who took the dictation that the typists typed. Usually they took it by hand. And then moving up even further, you have secretaries. And these folks provided support to executives. And something that like just kind of made me feel icky and awful inside was reading about not that women wanted to be secretaries. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's the fact that a 1960s author told readers that you may have once dreamed about being a doctor, a lawyer, or a scientist, ladies, but today you can study to be a medical or legal secretary. So it was like kind of accepting the fact that that was as high as you could go on the totem pole, was to be a secretary to a doctor or to an executive.
3: Well, yeah, and I mean, again, it, it was still at the time this kind of respectable work. You go to your typing school, you, you know, you graduate, then you go into whatever office, whatever steno pool you might land in. Um, but then the, we have the evolution from secretary to administrative assistant. And Lynn Peril, who wrote that book, Swimming in the Steno Pool, talks about how by the 1970s, calling yourself an administrative assistant was this intentional way of communicating to your usually male superiors that listen buddy i'm taking myself seriously and i expect you to take me seriously as well because she recounts horror stories mm-hmm. from other secretaries having to to deal um with with guys especially because of this idea that secretaries were a little more than just quote unquote hot to trot pencil pushing women who were there to have affairs with their boss
0: Right. Yeah, and the whole the whole suspicion of the wife and yeah, there were a lot of those cards like you mentioned that showed even back in the very turn of the 20th century that showed wives walking in on their husbands canoodling with the secretary. Yeah, um Speaking of the the whole secretary stereotype, this is something that
3: sociologist C. Wright Mills has called doing the housework of your boss's business. And secretaries were very quickly either considered to be spinsters or seductresses. They were essentially like the two schools of secretarial thought where you devote your entire life. To being a secretary. I mean, even in these like secretarial manuals where, where they advise women to really form their entire social lives around their secretarial work. Just to make sure mm-hmm. that if their boss needs them at the drop of a hat, they can be there with their steno pad. Um, or... You pull a Megan on Mad Men spoiler alert and you marry the boss.
0: <laughs> yeah, there was one of those manuals like in the 50s or 60s, I guess, talking about doing the housework for your boss at the business, talking about how, you know, with all of this new technology, you know, you don't want to get displaced and kicked out because they have computers or anything. So you should really try to do stuff like dust and empty the ashtrays because what computer can do that, Kristen? It can't, it can't. Roombas did not exist.
3: Uh, but in 1922, with the publication of a series of articles by May Christie in the San Francisco Chronicle, um, we have the emergence of the quote-unquote office wife mm-hmm. stereotype, who is really married to her job. But that also then gives way to this more, even more directly sexualized image of the secretary.
0: Yeah, which is why I mean, I think there's still that stereotype in a lot of places about, you know, oh, my husband has a hot young secretary, you know, just worrying that constant like stereotype of, oh, he hired a good looking secretary. I've got to keep an eye on him.
3: Right. And in the 1970s, even as some of these secretaries were shifting to the, the administrative assistant title and obviously wanting to. You know, have more dignity in their work. There does come a point where secretaries and second wave feminists do but heads. And this is something that Peril talks about as well because in 1971, for instance, Gloria Steinem gave a commencement address at Smith College and she references in it a, a idyllic future where women refuse to learn how to type. And then in March 1972, the National Organization of Women protested at the ad agency that created the Olivetti Girl ads. These were ads for this type of typewriter, which depicted dizzy-headed sex pots yeah. for secretaries. And I've looked at the ads, yeah. and they are, the the whole thing is like, are you an Olivetti girl? And it's, you know, very pretty girls looking kind of vacant. And so now is protesting this ad agency. And they were very anti-secretary, obviously coming from, you know, a, a good place of, you know, not having women kind of under the thumb of these sexist male bosses but there were also a lot of secretaries administrative assistants at the time who were like hey you know what i'm not really on board with your feminism because you're saying that my job is demeaning but i say my job is an honest
0: paycheck yeah i think wasn't it one woman in response to this said you know like Administrative assistants don't carry signs. Like, yeah, like we're fine where we are. We chose this line of work. Go speak for somebody else.
3: Right. And and it's kind of it is kind of interesting to think about that when you consider how, um, you know, the typewriter, even though it did create this initially create this massive gender pay gap, which I'm sure is still the case because there are some statistics finding that male secretaries still make more than female secretaries today. Um, but it was, you could say it was revolutionary oh, at, for the, sure. at the time in post-civil War America. Yeah, Unfortunately, the the stereotype in pop culture mm-hmm. really turned it into this spinster or seductress kind of thing.
0: Well, speaking of male secretaries, you don't really see them a lot. Do you? I mean, in her book, The Elite Secretary, The Definitive Guide to a Successful Career, Sandra Warbach talks about one man who described male secretaries as being viewed with suspicion. He he said that he felt like he was bucking societal preconceptions by working in that arena.
3: Well, and I feel like even though that was the 1980s and today, like we said, um, from those Bureau of Labor Statistics statistics, that women comprise 96% of all administrative professional jobs. So, obviously, there's still very much in the minority. But I was sure I was going to find some kind of academic study of the perceptions of male secretaries in the workplace. I did not find a one, not a single one. And I don't know maybe if it, wh- whether that's because it is so narrow Or not, Um, but I was surprised to see that, Um, almost as surprised to see how much of a headline maker it was when the White House recently appointed its first male social secretary, Jeremy Barnard. And it was kind of like a double headline because Mm he was male and openly gay. But seriously, Washington kind of fell over on itself at the idea of this male social secretary appointed by the Obama administration. And he didn't want to talk about it publicly for a long time. And the only public statement that I've seen Barnard make dealt specifically with organizing one
0: event, not about,
3: like, what do you feel about being this male secretary?
0: Yeah. It's probably like, I
3: feel great. I make a great amount of money doing it. Yeah,
0: I get to work in the White House. (laughs) Yeah, What do you do? (laughs) Podcast. Podcast. So I do think,
3: though, that... There needs to be greater appreciation for those admin roles, like you said at the top of the podcast, Caroline. A lot of times there is an assumption that they don't do anything. I mean, I know from working at How Stuff Works, our office manager, who is a male, he is in that four percent, and this office would <laughs> fall apart yeah. if he were not here. Oh yeah, I don't know how we would function exactly. Um, and I think that you know. Male, female, whatever, that secretarial work should get more of its due, and also recognize um,
0: its historical significance. Yeah, women. and just how I mean just how crazy it was to read about the typewriter helping to create this gender-neutral job where none had been before. As far as this, this job was really created out of thin air. Mm-hmm. I mean, for the most part, yeah, we had scribes, we had assistants, we had things like that, but this, this typist job or these stenographers, that was really something new after the Civil War and there was no preconceived notion of it being a very gendered male thing. Yeah, and it's unfortunate that
3: those pop culture stereotypes have in a large way, you know, overshadowed with those archetypes of the typewriter girl or the office wife. You know, it's always, we're always characterizing these women in relationship to men in the office, but maybe that does reflect still kind of the, the, the lingering discomfort with kind of women plowing through in the office. Yeah, perhaps. Perhaps. So any administrative professionals listening we want to hear, especially from you. Oh, and also, here's wishing you a happy Admin Day on April 24th. But, yeah, write into us uh, about what you feel about your job. Do you enjoy it? Is it horrible? Do people look down on you and make you just get coffee all the time? What is it like? Write to us. dot discovery.com is where you can send your letters.
4: Snag a job is where America goes to hire
2: Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank a National Association, member FDIC.
1: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
0: Yeah, I have one here from Michelle about our dress code episode. She said, when I was in high school during Spirit Week, we always had Gender Bender Day where the boys dressed like girls and the girls dressed like boys. Every year, without fail, boys would get sent home for their skirts being too short or their breasts being outrageously big. And girls were just fine wearing oversized T-shirts and drawing on facial hair. So there you have it, Michelle's evidence on Gender Bender Day that it's easier to dress like a boy.
3: Well, I've got one here from Sarah, and she's writing about the dress codes as well, which we've gotten a lot of mail about the dress code issue and it's uh, it's all been very much entertaining and she writes I went through my punk rock phase during junior high I fought and won on two different issues concerning our dress code I often dyed my hair staying within the dress code of not doing wild bright colors and I often did natural red brown and black but one time I went all out and did half of my head red half my head black and split right down the middle where my part was I went through three classes, and finally in my fourth, my science teacher gave me a disgusted look and said, no, you cannot come into my office like that. Go home. And when I asked why, he said, you expect me to be able to teach you with your hair like that? No. So I was sent home for the day and told that my hair had to be solid by the next day. My mom would have none of it and went straight to the dress code, which read, hair must be of natural color. And my argument was, what about girls with highlights? Brown hair and highlights, it's not natural, but you allow it. The school's response was, people are just used to that. And so we took that one all the way to the district office, and I was allowed to keep my hair. And that same year, I got an industrial piercing through the curled cartilage at the top of your ear. The same teacher sent me up, and I recited the section on piercings that said no excessive jewelry in or about the ear and said there were plenty of other girls who had two piercings in their cartilage, just not joined by a single bar. Again, I was able to keep my piercing, and they changed the dress code the following year. I did not go around finding things to beat in the dress code. I didn't wear spaghetti straps or flip-flops because it explicitly said not to. But when there was wiggle room, I was sure to use it to my advantage. Get em. Oh, the punk rock phases of our youth. So thanks to everyone who has written into MomStuff at Discovery.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Like us there. Follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. And you can also find us on Tumblr at StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And if you would like to read our blog as well this week, you can find it on our website. It's com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
2: This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking.
4: The